The sky above the port was the color of television, tuned to a dead channel. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm John. Welcome to Genre Podcast. We pick a different theme, read some books relating to it. Right now we're doing cyberpunk, and we just finished William Gibson's Neuromancer. So it's, it's kind of funny to me that we finished with Neuromancer, which is, is kind of widely seen as the start of the cyberpunk aesthetic and genre. It really sets the tone of what comes afterwards and what we read earlier. What do, what do you guys think about this? I mean, there's a lot. There's so many familiar tropes in this book just from the get go. I think that really recalls just the genre as a whole, like the sort of femme fatale-esque figure, because there is that film noir feel to this book, Molly. But she's also very much resembles what's her what's her name from Snow Crash the gu- the girl from Snow Crash the fifteen year old girl YT yeah and she really really resembles YT from Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash so this is a very common character you know this really spunky sort of young but very powerful and well trained in violence like girl who attracts the attention of all the men in the book basically so she's one familiar trope we've seen in multiple different books we've read in cyberpunk uh, did you guys find any other like common tropes there's one that i thought was really interesting when we, when we read bruce bethke cyberpunk <laughs> with a exclamation point they uh-huh. the whole thing is about like punks breaking into the internet and messing with old people kind of to make old people feel bad that they're still alive and in this book we have the panther moderns who aren't central central. They're kind of more like chaos thrown into the book to put hitches and plans and to kind of give you a good feel of how dangerous it is to have this matrix or how dangerous it is to have people who can do whatever they want with technology. Who could forget the kind of like faceless corporation hiding behind and pulling the puppet strings, you know, from the background. So in Snow Crash, we had the guy who just buys this giant yacht, which turns into kind of a roving community throughout the Pacific Ocean. They then have to like break into and, you know, it, you know, the, the plot of Snow Crash. Uh, and then also I think of perhaps maybe like the film version of Blade Runner, where there's that corporation there that, you know, is producing the the androids. They're, you know, always constantly pulling the strings in the background, kind of up to nefarious things. In this book, we have, I guess you would call them like a family corporation. Family of clones? Yeah, yeah. So they're called Tessier Ashpool. And what they are is, I mean, yes, they're, 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 they're an immortal family of clones who just keep on like renewing themselves. They're, they're compared to in a, in a really gruesome moment to a beehive Mm. so they're they're directly compared to a kind of beehive through this really intense symbolism and this is what william gibson writes horror the spiral birth factory steep terraces of the hatching cells blind jaws of the unborn moving ceaselessly the staged progress from egg to larva near wasp wasp in his mind's eye, a kind of time-lapse photography took place, revealing the thing as a biological equivalent of a machine gun, hideous in its perfection, alien. So there's a sense in which he's really using creative and figurative language to like really make you feel viscerally inhuman towards this family of, of clones. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's quite harrowing. I think it's also very interesting here that like you mentioned that 
in this case, you know, you mentioned that it's usually like some super corporation behind everything. But in this case, it's a little bit different, I think. I don't think you would, this is almost aristocratic in a sense, the way they're passing it down is like a piece of, because they live on the space station. They basically own this place and they're just passing it down generation to generation, clone to clone, sort of forever. That seems to me like a kind of more of an arist- aristocratic sort of separate class than a corporation per se. Would you agree? Like a family dynasty. Especially with the beehive as well. You think of a beehive as, as a very undemocratic, like a beehive is not democratic at all. You know, there's the queen and everyone, work, you know, and her serfs, right? So I think it's interesting is these sort of like a couple of like different sort of uh, regimes, as it were, sort of looming in the background. Like, oh, yeah, it's sort of made into an image here, but I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little bit too uh, psychoanalytic here, but it feels to me like it symbols of maybe fear about like corporations and also like places like Russia, you know, with very different regimes, which is obviously still currently a big issue. <laughs> right. I mean, they, they're literally described as a zaibatsu, which is a Japanese word. Just Wikipedia just translate it as a financial click. And it's basically like when these, these kind of family, I guess you would say like dino, it's like a family owned. I mean, you still see this in Korea, right? So just imagine like, one family owns all of Google and they're just passing the wealth down or one family owns all of Amazon. And it's just, it's just like a very internally. Inter- I mean, is that what Disney's like? Well, I mean, I know Disney keeps getting new heads of, of people. Is it the same? I'm actually not sure. I'm not sh- I'm not sure if Disney is like that, but to my understanding, something like Sony or what's the Korean one, Samsung, those are still like that. And and it's like, they're not just making phones, right? You can buy a Sony television you, or you can buy like Samsung air conditioner. So it's this kind of like this, mm. this entity that extends in all areas of the economy. So it's almost like it's not aristocratic so much. It's like it's a particular kind of global like capitalism in a sense where maybe there's like a lot of... Inter- uh, maybe oligarchic might be the yeah, best word. Maybe oligarchic. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like an oligarchy, right? Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's quite interesting. I think there is kind of that, a political dimension in that regard to this book. It's oligarchic, but they're they're also kind of absurd. Like there's the the disgusting element of this wasp's mm. nest. There's also the efficiency and yes, worker bees doing what the queen wants. But it's also kind of gross. And the the two main like the mm. two the matriarch and the patriarch of because you can't have both, but. The mother and father, who are the heads of this corporation, one is three Jane, and she's a clone of a clone of a clone. She's the third Jane. And mm. everything that she's remembering is just about her mother. Like the only, she doesn't really do anything except think about her mother. She's kind of a, a waste of a person. And then Ashpool, he's not cloning himself, but he's changing out his DNA. So he doesn't. I hope your mom doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> I'm not saying anything against mothers. I'm saying all she does is think about her mother and her mother's mother. If you ask her anything, she just gives you an answer about her mother. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so then anyway, Ashpool is just renewing himself. He's 200 years old and he's like a Death in Venice character that's like, cra- you know, not crazy, but just kind of absurd, like beautifying himself and just revivifying himself to keep going. And it's kind of disgusting. He even makes a clone who I guess legally by the by the way cloning works is his daughter and he just makes this clone so he can have sex with her and then he murders her. So he's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. But they are important because they control these two artificial intelligences. So even though there's kind of this this corporation that's controlling the AIs, they are really just mm. this weird glossy goop 
that the AIs are actually looking through. So the AIs are the real queen bees here, I think. Yeah, and it, it is interesting how they describe the the reason why they came up with these AIs to begin with. Because what you have is this family that's continually cloning itself towards immortality. And the AIs serve as a kind of like, they describe it as a symbiotic relationship. But I guess I would think of it more as like the AI is preserving, you know, a kind of like, it's taking on like a CEO position. You know what I mean? Like it has a kind of institutional memory and an eye towards like goals and long range planning. So it, but it, it is interesting how they initially conceptualize it as a symbiosis, but to the reader's eye, the AI is completely taken over. Not many books we've read have really dealt with the idea of cloning and a kind of immortality through cloning. But I think that this approach is a really interesting one by, by kind of placing the burden of storing memories as a kind of crutch to that kind of like constant renewal through, through cloning into an AI. The only other book I can think of that really tackles this idea would maybe be like the Dune series, which is very, very concerned with the idea of like, you know, clones, you know, continually being resurrected again and again, but it takes a, you know, a wildly different, perhaps even mystical approach towards that. So I I don't know. I like the solution that William Gibson comes up with here. It reminds me quite a bit of Am from I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream because we do have like this rich family cloning themselves. But then one of the main things that also involves identity and cloning identity and artificial intelligences with Wintermute, the AI, using real people's memories in order to talk to them because this AI is just programming that's that's taking on sentience, but it can't like move really. It can kind of control different robots, different computer systems, but it can't really get into the physical world all that well. So it has to ask these main characters, our main characters, Case and Molly, to help because they have real bodies. So Wintermute has to it can't create new personalities, basically. So Wintermute has to use Case's old girlfriend to talk to him. But it's like the avatar of the old girlfriend. Yeah. Right? It's like it's like constructed from his memories. It's really, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is like the avatar constructed from Case's memories. Oh. So it's it's kind of a weird different version of cloning as well. There's like there's multiple clones, ways of cloning, I guess, going on in this book. So what like what what is Wintermute's like purpose here? Like I, I I struggle to understand like what he was trying to achieve in this book. I felt so dumb reading this book because I was like, wait, what's going on? It's very difficult to read. It's nuts because this book puts you into the position of these characters kind of where you're confused the whole time. Like Snow mm. Crash is easy to follow because it's laid out for a reader. I think this book is not. It's laid out for as accurate and confusing an experience as would happen to someone with access to this matrix. But Wintermute and Neuromancer are like, they compare themselves to two halves of one brain. And so they're extremely powerful. They're both owned by this, this Ashpool Mercer company, whatever, however you say that. And Wintermute is kind of the go-getter. It's like the, the side of the brain that is trying to organize everything and make it all happen. So that's like the, the admin side. It wants to combine with Neuromancer so together they can escape these Turing police, like Alan Turing, that kind of put a lock down oh, yeah, on yeah. any artificial intelligence if it gets to where it has its own willpower to where it gets a, where it can grow as much as it wants the touring police come and they shut it down so wintermute figures if it can combine with neuromancer which has the ability to create it's the creative side of the brain 
then it will be kind of unstoppable. But it's interesting because we find out over time that Neuromancer does not want this. So it's really creepy. Wintermute knows that it can be all-powerful if it combines with Neuromancer, but to force someone to do that, to force this other artificial intelligence to do that, you kind of don't mm. like Wintermute as much as you do in the beginning. So like, if we think to the, the character of Case's old mentor, Dixie, Dixie connected with Neuromancer, died, but was preserved as a kind of like ROM construct. You know, he's just a he's just a a disembodied voice coming from a you know a, a digital copy of his old personality. It seems like Neuromancer is doing that to everyone that connects with it. So there's a digital copy of Case's old girlfriend Linda living inside of Neuromancer. The beach that is the setting of where Case meets the girlfriend is said to have been from the memories of of the clone Jane or Three Jane's mother. And then on top of that, at the end of the book, Case describes seeing Neuromancer and Linda, and he also sees a copy of himself, implying that a digital version of him seems to live on in perpetuity. So I don't know. There's there's this there's this element of like a kind of like a second life and immortality that Neuromancer is capable of. Yeah. And I think it's it's a great way to put it, lives on because Wintermute on its own can't allow things to live on. It just kind of manipulates things like costumes. It can put on costumes of old personalities. Things can actually live in Neuromancer. Like it's it's more godlike. And then when they combine, it's really godlike and it becomes the Matrix. Like it is now this whole other world. It's not only the platform for things to happen because of people, not not just a platform for people to like jack in into the computer and say, please show me a picture of Linda. It is now a whole other world that is living on and kind of expanding. An interesting thing that Wintermute says when talking about why he wants to merge with Neuromancer is he compares himself to a salmon swimming upstream. He says he's been programmed to just have this this desire to basically return to the place where he was born, right? I mean, if you guys don't know salmon, you know, they, they're born in the river, they swim out into the ocean, they spend their whole life there, and then something clicks in their brain and they're just like, I need to go have sex where I was born and then die. <laughs> so <laughs> what a life Wintermute is is feeling the same thing so he's manipulating he's manipulating the people in the world to ensure that he can get to neuromancer so that he or it can merge with each other it really reminds me of eros the platonic idea of eros you know mm -hmm. uh, especially like uh, aristophanes you know the you know human beings used to be this one whole and then they were split apart by the gods and then they spend the rest of their life trying to find their other half I think there's something going on here like that with Wintermute and uh, Neuromancer, I guess. That is a really good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also quite a spiritual idea to apply to basically data. Absolutely. Robots or whatever the fuck it is. Computer. Just a computer, basically. Well, it feels almost normalized when we talk about it with Case and Linda. I mean, in the sense of he's, he, Linda dies quite early in the book, I believe in chapter two. Yeah. But he spends the rest of the book kind of longing for her. And, you know, kind of like seeing her face and the yeah. data and, and that's kind of a driving emotional factor for him. But we take that as a yeah. rather regular everyday human emotion to be portrayed in literature. But it's actually quite radical, I think, 
<laughs> or not maybe radical is the wrong word, but you know, it's it's a it's a big idea to have machines feeling the same way for each other. Two artificial intelligences longing to join together. Yeah, it is like a relationship, isn't it? Like I visualize. I visualize Wintermute as like, uh, you know, the woman who just wants uh, her man to settle down. Neuromancer, the man who's just not ready for commitment. <laughs> that's, I think that's the rom-com version of Neuromancer, that right there. It reminds me of relationships with countries that get occupied by much larger countries and then try to force rejoining because Wintermute is trying to do whatever it takes to drag Neuromancer back in to this relationship neuromancer is trying to get away trying to stop it it doesn't think it no it doesn't think that it belongs to much anymore um yeah I, I really wanted to talk about a bit about like addiction in this book i felt like that was one of the main themes that i picked up and i think it runs throughout the book this theme of addiction so the whole story kind of begins with case uh, we find out about Case that he is like a, a great, you know, uh, what they call like what a cowboy, uh, oh, yeah. console cowboy, um, basically a great hacker. Yes, he's a console cowboy. He's a great hacker. And then he steals from the company that he was working from for. Sorry. So what they do is they infect him with some kind of disease that stops him from jacking into the Matrix and leaves him basically powerless. And this actually really reminded me of a book from last time, Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep? You know, people being made, like, for example, into chicken heads, people losing their intelligence. So that was a, sort of a theme here as well, uh, which is quite interesting crossover. But yeah, I just thought that was very interesting that there is this sort of sense that he's addicted. He needs to get back to the Matrix, like he not just for a job, not just for work. Like he needs to, you know, it's like something he really needs to do. It's so important to him. That's his life is you know, hacking into the matrix. But on the side, he's also taking uppers all the time and doing drugs. So there's, I think addiction is like the main driving factor in a sense that gets Case into the story and then gets the, the plot moving. Do you think that he does the uppers and like all the other drugs he does because he couldn't jack in? Yeah, Or do you I think, think so. that jacking in is is part of the spectrum of his addiction? So I, the way I see it like, is I think... Like he would be, he would be doing... Yeah. It's like... Uh, yeah, I think the thing is that like, he he was he he I think he was addicted to, or at least identified really 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 strongly with his role as a hacker as a you know console cow cowboy. That's who he was. That was his whole thing, and he, he you know he was really like addicted to. It. He needed it for his self esteem and for you know he just needed it. Then he lost that, and it was an act of his own fault. And then I think he needed something to replace that with, but he obviously couldn't get back into the matrix. I think that's probably when the, the drug started. And then it's interesting that when he gets his. Uh, so the, the action of the story is basically this, they, these people come along, Molly, and she takes Gisco and Molly t comes along and they sort of like have a relationship and she t um, takes him to Armitage who promises him that he can give him back his abilities to, you know, hack into the Matrix and also that they've run a health check on him and that he's going to die within a year from like pancreas disease and stuff from all the drugs he's been taking and then they can solve that problem too. So he says, all right, that sounds like a good deal. I'll do whatever it, you know, whatever it takes because he needs that. Or else he's going to die, quite simply. And, but also so he can get back into the Matrix. And then, you know, that's, that's like the engine of the plot. So, yeah, I, I think that's how I see his addictions manifesting and sort of driving the story. I think it drives the plot, like you said. And it's also really important for, the cre for Gibson's creation of what the Matrix and what cyberspace looks like, since he's kind of the forerunner for creating this as a genre, as a visual space. 
In Snow Crash, it's very clear because I think so much has come before it. It's kind of easy to say, I'm going to write a cyberpunk novel with this plot and the structure is already there. He puts his matrix, it's, it's like a night sky with a tram. Everyone walks up these streets. It's very clear what's going on all the time. But for Gibson, it feels like going into the matrix is almost like it is, you know, you're addicted to it like one is doing drugs, but it's also kind of a drug experience almost. It's full of flashing colors, faces flash in and out of your view. You have access to different people's feelings. If you use that sim stim deck, the simulated stimulation deck, you can also like be tricked kind of like in a drug hallucination. You can be tricked by your own mind that you're seeing memories something real happening before you same in going into this matrix stuff is not clear at all you do not have as much control as you do in the snow crash matrix with these different ais like Mm. getting into your memories and using them to manipulate you like a bad trip or just yeah things going wrong the way you just put that then bad trip i think that's another thing that is i definitely think links to this idea of addiction because these you know experiences in the matrix are almost like you say like a bad Mm. trip they're like a, a bad trip that he can't get out of. And in some cases, they're a, a great trip that he doesn't want to get out of. Like at one point, he, you know, he's he's with his ex-girlfriend, Linda, and they can be happy. And that's what Neuromancer, I think, is promising him. It's like his lure. Right. Like it, It's kind of like a bargain. It, it's a very mm. like literary moment in the sense of like the, the devil is there offering you eternal yeah. happiness in exchange for, you know, not, you know, doing what you're supposed to do. Mephistopheles. Yeah. Which, of course, he turns down and then, you know, yeah, etc. Embraces reality again. And again, I think that's the thing that he's he ultimately chooses reality over this fantasy, essentially. I think that is kind of at the root of addiction, I think, is this, you know, it's, it comes down to like a kind of like how you're going to live. You know, are you going to live in reality or are you going to live in a, a you know fantasy of your own choosing? And ultimately, I think, you know. Yeah, sensible. Most sensible people will come to the conclusion that it's just better for you to embrace reality, even though it's somewhat unpredictable and not always enjoyable, than a fake or sham enjoyment or satisfaction. So, I think that's sort of maybe his emotional arc in this story. Which actually, you know, looking back, I think is quite a strong. You know, I think Case is quite a well-developed character in this book. Mm. Which is something I think, you know, I can't give too many specific examples. My, my impression is that I think some of the cyberpunk books we have read, I don't think they've tended to do a great job of, you know, giving these characters particularly meaningful um, in their lives. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. I don't know. I, I, I feel like Philip K. Dick's characters often have very interesting inner lives, even if they are kind of, I guess I would say like Kafka-esque inner lives. They're kind of pathetic miserable but Mm. with gibson's characters i feel i feel like i have a hard time seeing them outside of their hard-boiled detective fiction kind of tropes that they're they're spinning off of just have a very strong feel of mickey spillane in this i think (laughs) yeah yeah it's nothing against gibson and i and i think i think he creates these characters vividly but i i do also read this as another sci-fi detective fiction cross-pollination which i think i'm kind of losing patience for after this book but i think it's kind of fallen out of favor in more modern stuff or more contemporary stuff well he's a difficult character he definitely has like an arc like you said john where he is trying to he does the right thing kind of i guess in the end or at least he does what he intended to do he completes the mission and he might overcome addiction we'll have to see 
what he does next next book. But he is difficult to kind of track. So when Philip K. Dick is writing Rick Deckard, we know really well what he wants, even if it's kind of silly. He really just wants a real animal. He wants what everyone else wants. It's a very like keeping up with your neighbors scenario. <laughs> you know, that's one easy thing to, to follow. In this, we have a drug addict who's very impulsive and going in and out of different experiences, taking so many drugs that he passes out for a number of hours, going into the matrix and then looking at his watch later and realizing he's been out for nine hours. So he is kind of hard to like sometimes. So it is, you know, and it is very, like you said, you get lost in the kind of technology thrill and the detective thrill, the, the hardball detective thing where it's like, is he just yeah. <laughs> reacting because that's how a detective would react or because it's cool? Or is he actually having an authentic emotional experience? But I don't, th- I don't think the two are mutually exclusive to that. I would say that, you know, uh, Mike Hammer, I think Mike Hammer, in my opinion, I find him quite emotionally relatable. And there's there's always moments in those those Mickey Spillane books where I, I, I recognize real feeling, real character in, in Mike Hammer, but he's also very much the stereotype as well. So I think there is a way to do both, isn't there? You can communicate real, meaningful communication through tropes. I think that tropes don't hinder communication. Mm-hmm. Tropes enable communication. It's just that we don't always, sometimes tropes self-sabotage themselves by becoming cliche. And I, and I, and I guess that was the line for me is, is does this, does this character engage in genre and trope or does it ever slide into cliche? I don't think it slides into cliche, but it, at, at certain times I was just kind of like, okay, okay, we get it. We get it. What about the writing style? Cause I feel like that's. I feel like he has a very idiosyncratic writing style. I feel like if you were to take three, just like a temperature comparison between the Philip K. Dick book we read, the Neil Stevenson book we read, and this, like what what words would you guys characterize this style of writing? Blunt, sarcastic, choppy, weird, specific verbs that give it that really hard-boiled feel where you have to kind of be in with the lingo, in with the feeling to get it. There's also a jargon. It's just filled with jargon, like str- not even jargon, but like street street talk. You know, it's slang, slang, lots of slang, but often novel slang. They're not just walking around like saying it's lit. <laughs> I almost feel like it has a frantic character to it. Mm. Like in the, in the, like to me, it felt like he was writing while on uppers because there's just yeah. this cycle of ideas, image. You know, but everything has a very quick Passover, like Like nothing really lingers. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I don't know. It just, it reminded me of reading like Jack Kerouac's novels that he wrote while three-day bender. You know what I mean? Or Ayn Rand. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think there's also some sense in which it's taking place in the 80s. You know, it's lots of rock music. I think it's maybe, you know, tapping into a lot of like rock music style, like way of you know, I don't know if you say like a way of speaking, but certain attitudes to the world. So, you know, at least surface level nihilism going on and, you know, nothing means anything and everyone's stupid. And mm-hmm. this kind of, I guess you're like juvenile or teenage, but maybe also like kind of like heavy metal and sort of rock attitudes to life that I think is part of these books and part of the writing style as well. Cyberpunk. Yeah, like punk, like cyberpunk in name and nature, right? Like it, it is kind of like a punk attitude, isn't it? 
to writing. Like a very, you know, it's, it's a very similar style to like a Chuck Palahniuk or something like that. You know, someone who's more contemporary, but the same sort of like, you know, yeah, we're punks, we're addicted to drugs, you know, we we don't give a fuck. You know, this sort of attitude, I think, really comes through in the style and, and the, the writing, just the way people speak. You know, the way something's communicated to you tells you exactly how you're supposed to take that thing. Are you supposed to, fa- you know, you're supposed to feel sarcastic about this thing. You're supposed to be like, roll your eyes at this thing and be like, I've seen this a thousand times. Who is this fucking chicken head? You know, like that kind of, yeah, it's fair. <laughs> I'd say it's interesting, but I think over the length of a book, it starts to grate a tiny bit. Mm. I find it a little bit too hard-edged, a little bit too nihilistic. It makes me depressed, but not in a, not in a good way. Could you two see yourselves reading the other two books in the trilogy? I wouldn't say I'm uh, impelled to uh, with any immediacy. I'd be interested to see how it starts. Like, where is it going to pick it up? If we're still following Case, are we following Case and Neuromancer's new reality in The Matrix, or are we still following Case, the recovering drug addict in the real world? I mean, the book ends with a tease that the AI has made contact with another AI in the Alpha Centauri system. Mm. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I was like, what is this, a Marvel movie? Like, <laughs> we just ended with, a, yeah. <laughs> you know, an after credit tease for the next installment. But yeah, I'd be curious if the, the other <laughs> two books in the Sprawl trilogy take us up on that on that promise. I, full disclosure, I put them on hold on my local library audiobook app, but, you know, I'll take my time to, to get through them. No rush. Unfortunately, my favorite book of the series is the least cyberpunk book, which is The Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. I mean the the elements I I talked about earlier the the what what was it that made you it made it your favorite? Because I know you've been talking a lot recently about like, Philip K. Dick. Like, what is it about that as opposed to the other ones that stands out to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we've read we've read two Philip K. Dick books now: the God of War one and then Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Both of them, you know, I already used the word Kafka esque, but they also have these like really startling, unsettling images that kind of play emotional tricks on the reader. So like maybe in God of War, it was the, what was it? Was it a giant rat? It was a giant hive of rats. There was a giant worm. There was a giant worm. worm. Yeah. And then there's also the the hive of rats that communicate like with the giant mind. rats. The, the giant rats is from Snow Crush, I think. Hmm. Like the rat. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of like a, a herd of rats. What, what's it? What's a herd of rats called? A flock of rats? A pack of rats? A rat king. A rat, a rat king. king, yeah. The rat pack. Yeah, the rat pack. <laughs> <laughs> and then also in Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, like, you know, these these images that are meant to invoke our, our empathy and the empathy test of, like, describing hurt animals or even just him picking up the animal at the end and, and being like, oh, I found this creature. I found this creature. And then they flip it over and it has a control panel on the bottom and it's electric all along. I don't know. I just I just find something really like poetic and beautiful about what Philip K. Dick does. And I don't feel like I'm in the presence of beauty when it comes to Stevenson or Gibson. And I think there's a very like good comparison to make here, I think, in my opinion, between Philip K. Dick's writing in, in both of the books of his we've read that you've already mentioned and like Neil Stevenson in Snow Crash. So what I would point to is I think that the, both of them have like, I would say, theological dimensions to the, the plot and the, the themes. For example, in Snow Crash, 
there was lots of stuff about these old sort of Sumerian gods and how they, you know, birthed the world essentially. And But in that book, I think that it's very much like it feels separate to the story. Like he finds out about Enki and the Namshub and all of these, you know, sort of ancient, somewhat esoteric ideas and gods from this basically like a librarian, a robot librarian, a kind of a primitive AI of sorts, by comparison, at least to the, the AI in Neuromancer. And they just basically give him, give him a bunch of just just an information dump it's just an information dump it's like digital wikipedia so i think there's nothing there's nothing there's no elegance in neil stevenson's style there's no grace there's just like here's sci-fi plot sci-fi plot information dump about you know some theological stuff that he sort of half understood you know sci-fi 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 like this like that's kind of like what neil like how i would like parody neil stevenson's style you know respect to neil stevenson he's better than that but there's like a you know a straw man in a sense that's what we're dealing with here but i think with philip k dick he's much more elegant with it you know there are these theological themes but they're much more subtle like uh when i think back to god of war the deus irae you know it really reminded me of as if the apocalypse had taken everyone back to like when people first started occupying the new world you know the pilgrims and various other groups and it was still very much like you know everyone was up for grabs there's some, some somewhat like you know the, the wild west you know the, when it was really in its early stages and there's all these religious groups and different churches rising up. And there's one in particular that stands out. And, you know, this, you know, that's, so the point is, it has this theological aspect to it. And people do make questions about God, but it's all elegantly tied into the plot of the book. And it never feels like an intrusion. It feels like it very much is part of the story. So I think to me, that's what makes Philip K. Dick stand out against the other ones, who I think aren't nearly as elegant in putting bigger themes into an ostensibly sci-fi a sci-fi story i think so too i think i also liked to android stream electric sheep the most it's easiest to follow and you're right this kind of elegant and i think he's the best craftsman you know he's trying to get some ideas across that he's experimenting with it's interesting though when you think about the authors and their books like neil stevenson probably just he's seems really normal seems like a good dude nice person seems like a normal normal dude gibson seems <laughs> weird but pretty normal and then Philip K. Dick was nuts, like fucking psychopath nuts. Dangerous person sometimes. Yeah, but amazing. he has the most... If uh, you open up Philip K. Dick's Wikipedia page, just scroll to any random paragraph and you'll read something that shakes you. <laughs> <laughs> Dick's book is kind of the most sober book. And then Gibson's is totally nuts. Like Gibson does feel drug addled. It feels totally... The book itself is on drugs. And I feel like I should like this book the most. I think it's the most realistic. Like, I think this is what AI will actually do. And it seems to be the best prediction as far as science fiction books are predictions of the future and our relationship with technology. I think Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is not very likely, not very real. Why can't we imitate? Why can't we make programs that imitate empathy? I don't didn't quite buy that. It's it's an elegant idea to explore. But as a science fiction idea i don't know if it really holds up still it's written to tell a story and written for the reader to actually have an experience with the author whereas like you've pointed out this kind of blunt or sarcastic tone of neuromancer is kind of a put off but it does feel in some way that i don't understand like the most significant book that we read neuromancer feels like the most it does i think because it it feels the most alive even though it does feel drug addled and kind of pushed out by too much amphetamines it does feel like the author is really trying to 
do something that he's not I, really capable of doing yet. He's trying to pull something mm-hmm. off that the others are not. I kind of felt like uh, Snow Crash, to, to me, f- feels like the most like prescient prediction for the future. Because, I don't know, I guess the, the first thing is because I have the instinct that I think that, that just struck me as the most believable. <laughs> if, if I'm going to break it down a little bit, I think the way that the metaverse and the internet sort of related to the world felt more realistic to me in Snow Crash. I think in Neuromancer, it, it's got kind of a, a, a strange element to it where like, I'm not really, I, I found it hard to visualize and understand what the AI was doing and how it related. You know, it seemed like people just somehow entered a different world and then left that different world. That's why it kind of made me think of drugs because it was more like that than any kind of like, you know, dealing with the computer system. That's just what, it, you know, the description sounded like to me. With Snow Crash, I think that it seemed much more realistic to me, like how you would sort of like sit back, plug in, go into a particular like chat room, essentially a really fancy chat room that's been, you know, part of the, made part of the, uh, the, you know, let's call it the internet. What is it? The, uh, the metaverse. And then you log out and, you know, you're in this normal world. And there's a, uh, to me, I don't know, to me, the world felt a lot more believable in Snow Crash. You know, the world building felt much better to me. I agree. The world building is better and it's easier to digest. It's easier to see. It's easy, easier to follow along. But as far as what the AI are doing, I agree that Snow Crash, it does feel like a chat room. Like that is basically what Neil Stevenson is expressing. But what I don't really buy is like people using the metaverse to go and get shit done. That's really clear. And like being able to navigate in kind of this map space to get to different places to access different information. That kind of happens in Neuromancer too, mm. but that's not as significant for the Neuromancer plot. In Snow Crash, it's like, okay, we the peop- we people who use these computer systems can go and access different things. And then there's bad actors who are humans who use the matrix to infect us, give us viruses, get us to do certain things. That's be- mm. that's believable in a way because it's like using this this kind of religious idea of people following along, buying into something, and then being infected by something because of belief. Or you know, so that's believable. But this idea in Neuromancer, mm. where it's the AIs once they start thinking, they will be able to convince us to do things in the real world. So it's kind of the opposite of Snow Crash, where people go into the Matrix to get things done. The artificial intelligences kind of get get people to come into them give them new instructions and then people go out and do things in the in the real world to do the kind of artificial intelligences bidding so it's it's mm. more mysterious because one is a human bad actor snow crash is a human bad actor now here in neuromancer we have intelligences that we can't understand that we don't understand pushing us out to do things and creating things that are far beyond our control yeah, so this is very much like the AI takes over sort of plot line, isn't it? I think, yeah. again, we've already mentioned it, but it's very much like uh, from I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, mm-hmm. which you read way back, way back a long time ago, and I believe Dystopias or Apocalypses, one of the two. Mm. Very similar genres in oftentimes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that, that's the kind of, that's the worst case scenario of what will happen with Neuromancer and Wintermute is it will become like Am and just torture whatever bits of, human meat mm. are left you know the six people who are still alive what will neuromancer and wintermute do we have no idea but it's talking to something in a totally different galaxy so will it be good will it be bad we don't know it's funny as well because in this like you know the it says here that the ai is created with were created with like an i think the term was an electromagnetic electromagnetic shotgun tied to the mm. head oh, yeah. from from the moment they were made so it's clear that attempts had been made to limit the power of 
the AI. And that's what these Turing tests are all about. And the Turing police is to ensure that if any of, any of them even look like they're thinking about getting smart enough to overpower the humans, they would basically get shut down instantly. But here, it seems like they've finally managed to unify and beat the Turing you know, test for good. They've They've managed to surpass the limitations and the constraints that the human civilization had attempted to put on them. And yeah, I guess I'd be curious to see in the sequels to this book how that world looks now. I don't think we really got a vision of that in this story because it kind of ends at that point. But it even ends, it goes beyond our expectations. And I appreciate how they don't give us any indication. Like even Mm -hmm. by the end of it, we have no clue as to the desires, plans, anything of what these AI want to do. Like maybe maybe they become a benevolent godlike figure, you know. It's it's, it's not beyond the realms of science fiction, at least. Yeah, it's... it's it, I wouldn't even say it's left up to the reader imagination. It's just purposefully left mysterious. You know what I think the the literary world is, is lacking? And I might sound stupid here because the other day I had the idea for an idea that had already been out as well. But I would be curious to see a kind of utopian take on AI. Is there any of those about? Because whenever you read a book about AI, it's almost always about to destroy the world or kill everybody or just generally uh, dehumanize us to the point where we're completely alienated from life and nihilistic. Like, are there any books in which the AI is like, oh, oh the world's great now. Like any AI utopias? It's a good question. Or would that be a silly idea in principle? Like, why, why aren't there any of those? Well, you know, when it's your turn, when, when you feel you're calling to write your own novel, you just start the plot in a world of chaos. And then the protagonist has the solution. And that's installing the AI. You can pay me royalties for that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. I think it's kind of like, you know, Hegel in a sense, like, you know, maybe we're going to finish history and then we're all going to be equal and, you know, beautiful, or at least just an interpretation of Hegel. Maybe, maybe, maybe mm. then we'll just be free to, what is it, Marx, what does he say? Like, you know, fish in the afternoon and, you know, play PlayStation in the evening and, you know, I mean, ride a bike, or whatever. Like, you know, the, <laughs> we're just yeah. going to toss about for quite a lot of time and, you know, do all, do all wonderful things. Have a wonderful time. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you bring that up because when I read something like Gibson, the impression I get of people's leisure time is that it's just totally wasted. Yeah. It's like a world where everyone is just playing PlayStation in their in their mother's basement all mm. day long. But hey, you know, yeah. one man's fishing in the afternoon is another man's pro bass fisher six. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Who's to say which one is right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, talk to you later, uh, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.